Hello and welcome to the My Dietitian Journey podcast. My name is Adam, your co-host and producer. With me, of course, Felicia Peraza of Peraza Nutrition Fame, My Dietitian Journey Fame, YouTube star, <laughs> international celebrity. We're going to get into a, a frequently asked questions list today, an FAQ, a FAQ, if you will. And we're going to go through some things. How's it going? Good. Yeah, what it's like to be a dietitian, what it's like to be in private practice, been getting a lot of questions from students and interns, so figured it would be timely for a podcast topic. All the goofs and gaffs, the live, laugh, loves of the dietitian world. I hate those signs. Okay. They're everywhere. I'm done. Okay. I promise. <laughs> All right. So let's just jump right in. Why did you become a dietitian and what made you interested in the field? So I actually wasn't sure that I wanted to be a dietitian. I didn't even really know what a dietitian was or what you could even really do in this field. But I applied for actually nutrition and nursing, got in for both and decided to go into nutrition because I felt I had more of a passion myself. Um, One story you'll probably hear very similar to a lot of other dietitians is um, I lost weight myself and I discovered cooking and the benefits of eating well. And I was experimenting with recipes and started to kind of just dive into it for myself, which kind of spurred this passion and then figured, hey, why not try on a nutrition course? And I took my first college nutrition course and I really loved it. And and then I just kind of went with it. So Well, you decided to major in dietetics before you started going to college. Yes. Yeah. I applied for dietetics. And so. nursing. And nursing. I remember that. Yeah. It'd be weird if you were a nurse. Like, I know. It's so it's, different to think about that. It is weird to think about that that was such a, an option. <laughs> but you, you did have a lot when you were a kid. You, you started cooking dinner for a big Italian family. She started cooking dinner yes. f- at home for her family. You uh, had some ups and downs with weight, and there was a time when you were a little overweight. There was a time when you were a little underweight, and you kind of had your own struggles, and you overcame that mm-hmm. through diet, exercise, and lifestyle. Yeah. And that was kind of what spurred your passion for dietetics and got you interested in, in helping people change their lives as well. Yeah, especially the part of like... I really enjoy cooking and I was always experimenting with recipes and testing things out for my family and try this, try that. I won't tell you what's in it. And so that was something that I really liked about nutrition was it wasn't just, you know, eating well and exercising, but also how food could be really fun. And my family, like you mentioned, was, is very much food, um, Italian. And so it was something that was always kind of on the forefront for me too. There was an era where Felicia would make brownies and she would give them to people and she would say, try it and then I'll tell you what's in it. <laughs> and the secret ingredient was black beans. Yes. Yeah. That was your meme for a little while. And people would be like, what do you mean? You're not going to tell me what's in it. What's in this? Because uh, there's another ingredient that sometimes goes in brownies that, you know, that we're, not, that we're not condoning anything um, of legal or illegal origin going in brownies. But for Felicia, it was black beans. Yes. And it's funny because people to this day in my family will still be like, is there anything weird in it? What's in it? Tell but they me. were good. <laughs> they were. They didn't taste like beans. Yeah. And it's one of those things. I've, I've done a bunch of recipe um, like demos with black bean brownies, um, especially when I was working in a, a grocery store as a retail dietitian. And I would ask people to guess the secret ingredient and people would try it and they'd be like, oh, it must be cinnamon. Or maybe it's spinach, but they would almost never, unless they've actually made it themselves, guess that it was black beans because you really don't taste the bean flavor. And so. That's the magic, baby. <laughs> They'll never know what hit them. Fiber in your brownies. Go figure. 
All right, which do you find more beneficial, telehealth or in-person sessions? By the way, these are in no particular order, but we're we're on the being a dietitian section now, and then we'll get into private practice later. This kind of kind of teeters on both, but yeah, yeah. Uh, telehealth or in-person. So uh, definitely in-person, but I actually find video more engaging uh, now that I've been doing it for a little bit, uh, but it does depend on the client. So originally I started my practice and I was doing only face-to-face. I was doing actually a lot of in-home sessions. I was going to my clients and then with, you know, pandemic and everything, uh, switched to not just phone, but also video. And I find that the video, any method can really be engaging with a client. It depends on really you as the dietitian and and making sure that you are actively listening to them and, you know, doing all the things that you need to be doing to, um, you know, keep the conversation going and keep them engaged. But um, I definitely find video to be super engaging and can be just as beneficial as in person now that I've been doing it. So yeah, I guess the visual component adds another layer of depth and allowing you to see someone and gauge their reactions and then for them to see you and see your enthusiasm and facial expressions, I imagine it adds quite a bit to the experience. Yeah. And with video, you know, people can, people show me products that are in their homes, which just like if I was there with them. And then also with, especially the platform I use, you could do screen sharing. So often I'll be talking about a handout or a resource and I could just easily screen share it with a client I can go over it with them. So just like I would have a printed handout, I can have it digital and then I can send it to them and they could print it out or things like that. But it can be just as engaging. I have to imagine that the landscape of not only dietetics, but just telehealth in general will change over the next 10 or 20 years to the point where the generation that ages into retirement will have come up. It'll be like Gen X where they will be sort of used to these telehealth mechanisms because in their day-to-day job like uh microsoft teams video Mm -hmm. conferencing that stuff is becoming it's very popular already in the corporate world and if people are used to using that technology in their day-to-day life and and work when they retire using it for telemedicine is telehealth is just going to be intuitive and it'll probably be easier for any uh healthcare professional that operates with that technology but i know it's been a barrier for you right now because sort of the the traditionalist and baby boomer generation that came up in a world where this technology didn't exist. It's been a challenge, I imagine, to, to use yeah. that stuff. Yeah, there's certain clients of mine that, especially ones that are in the workforce right now, they've actually worked through a lot of the kinks with using like digital platforms and video conferencing through their workplace. And so when they, by the time they're working with me, they've already kind of you know, understood how a lot of these platforms work. Um, and using the one that I do uh, for my telehealth sessions, you just click a link and it opens in a browser. But being able to like troubleshoot if their mic's not hooked up or headphones. And so a lot of them on that aspect, it's been a lot easier because they've actually kind of had that a little bit with their workplace. I do find for some of my like retired clients that depending on the client, some of them, you know, the technology is a little bit more of an issue and a barrier. And so it might take a little bit in terms of explaining to them, you know, what to do. And again, it does help that it's just clicking a link and it opens, um, you know, in terms of making it easier for them. I think it's the silent generation was the one before baby boomer. I can't remember the word. I think so. You know, what's funny is the term baby boomer used to mean like virulent young person back in like the sixties or seventies when they would talk about baby boomers. It was like these young whippersnappers, kind of like how Gen Z is right now. Wow. Super weird to think about that. I was watching some old political stuff on that. How do you how do you handle working with clients when you disagree on something? 
So disagreeing can come from a couple of different places. Um, And we did a podcast on the stages of change, the TTM, actually two podcast episodes on it in particular. Um, But I find that disagreements come from a couple of places. The first is you kind of rushing into action with a client too quickly than they're ready for or creating goals that they're not ready for. And this creates what's called resistance where we're kind of pushing for change and the client just isn't ready for that change. And then that's where you might see some disagreements arise. Um, with the stages of change, if you're not familiar, it's basically a, it's a model um, of how people move through change. So they're in a stage of pre-contemplation, then contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and then termination, or we termed it completion when we talked about it. Um, But if someone's in pre-contemplation, they're not ready for change. You know, the cons are way outweighing the positives. And then if they're in this contemplation mode, they're weighing the pros and cons. They're pretty ambivalent or kind of on the fence. So with that said, you know, a lot of times with disagreement, I find people are in those two beginning stages where they are still kind of really honing in on all the cons and the negatives of making it behavior change. So that could be part of the issue. And so kind of taking a step back as a dietitian to one, remind them that, you know, they have the choice here. So emphasizing autonomy um, and then also asking what they might be interested in. Now, if you kind of disagree on something that might be more nutrition related, or let's say, you know, they say, you know, my doctor told me to do this and what you're recommending is kind of the opposite of that, which you'll probably run into. Um, Maybe not the opposite, but tangentially different in that some things will be semantically grappled with. I've seen where doctors qualify eggs as dairy and others don't, or like recommend certain things and they're, they don't categorize things the same way a dietitian would. But yeah, I've, that's going to come up, of course. Yeah. And so sometimes it's, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding on all points. So I'll have clients who say, you know, my doctor told me to cut out carbs, but really maybe the conversation was on cutting out refined carbohydrates, which is obviously a lot different than just eliminating carbs from the diet. So sometimes taking a step back and seeing if you can actually get the the notes from the physician or, you know, get some kind of information from them to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, But in that moment with the client, what I do is I ask them, you know, what information were they provided with? And then what you do is what's called an EPE format. So you elicit what they might know about the information, and then you ask permission before providing. And why this might seem like silly, you know, to ask permission, but if you just start giving information, you're going to create more resistance and more disagreement. So if you could take a step back, you know, open ended question, ask your, your clients. So well, what do you know about this topic? Or, or tell me more about what your doctor told you. Uh, you open the floor for discussion a little bit more. And then you might say, you know, there's some different information that I have on this or different research that I've come across. Would it be okay if I shared that with you? Um, and again, leaving it in your client's place. Sometimes you're not going to agree on something and you might be absolutely correct in what you were trying to say, uh, but the client isn't ready for it or isn't interested in it. And that's where you might have to just change course and maybe talk about something different to kind of work through that resistance. And sometimes this happens in the beginning part of the relationship with a client where they may not know you very well just yet. Maybe you didn't create that partnership just yet. And you might need to give it a little bit of time before they really maybe start to trust you. The trans theoretical model is a really great system for working with clients in any kind of counseling. It handles things like resistance and and empathy really well. I'll leave a link to our three-part series where we did podcasts on the various stages of this. I'll leave a link in the description of the show notes for anyone who's interested in that. 
If, uh, if you're on YouTube, that'll be a link to a playlist. And if you're on audio, it'll be a link to each of the individual episodes. So look out for that if you want to check that out. But how, uh, moving on, how do you build rapport with your clients, which is rapport, you know, good relationship. How do you guys get on the same level and feel more comfortable with each other? So definitely by actively listening. That's kind of the first thing. And what that means is not just listening to respond and jump in with your next thing on your checklist, but actually hearing for what is said and not said. So that means also looking at your client and, you know, the nonverbal cues that you might have in terms of their body language. But then the other place of that, too, is, you know, if you're not doing, let's say, a video session and you're doing a phone session, you know, hearing and listening really for the tone, you know, if someone is speaking really quickly or if their tone is a little maybe different, you know, it might be something that they're really upset or you might sense a little bit of a disagreement. So really being able to actively listen is the first thing. Using your questions wisely is also really important here. So when a lot of times in the beginning session, you know, you want to ask lots of questions, get to know your client, you know, maybe clarify things on paperwork, but it can start to feel really cold and clinical. So I try to balance out. And if you're in dietetics as a student right now, and in your undergrad, you'll learn about motivational interviewing and what's called the ORs. Um, so open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries, these open-ended questions encourage conversation. So tell me more about, you know, your daily intake or, um, you know, what does that typically look like for you? And it's a question that's going to be open. So it's encouraging conversation and not something closed, like a yes or no answer. So, you know, when you fire off, you know, do you exercise? Do you eat vegetables? These are yes and no answers that don't really encourage conversation. So the more that we can encourage, you know, again, more of an open conversation and allowing the client, client to kind of dig deeper, we're building that rapport with them too. Um, the other big thing is also in the beginning of a session, you know, creating a little bit of space for engaging with them and not just jumping into whatever your agenda is or checklist that you might have, but, you know, kind of building again, a little bit of that space in the beginning of an appointment to just kind of, you know, Hey, how, how are things going? And again, a little bit, maybe conversational, not so conversational <laughs> that you don't end up talking anything about nutrition for the entire appointment, but uh, sometimes having a little bit of a breathing room in the beginning of the appointment can be helpful too. That's been a thing for you with some clients where they are a little too conversational and you kind of have to reel it in. And being able to do that tactfully is often a challenge, I yeah. imagine. You've yeah. had clients where they kind of ramble and go on and go into the personal stuff and then it detracts from the appointment. Yeah, and it's hard because, you know, you want to, a lot of times people don't have someone to listen to or, you know, something might have just happened in their life. And so you're the first person that they're talking to that day. And so, you know, you want to be, you know, sensitive to that and, you know, still listen um, and be there. But at the same time, sometimes they'd be one taking up a lot of time in the appointment where you're not talking about anything nutrition and they might feel, they might leave the appointment and feel like they didn't learn anything. And if they're paying for the session too, you might run into some conflicts there. And so, you know, being tactful of kind of cutting them off sometimes, you know, I, I just want to pause here for a moment. Um, I, I'm thank you for sharing, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, I want to make sure that we get time today to talk about, you know, whatever your goals are or something like that, where you, you know, shift to let them know like, Hey, we're not talking a lot about nutrition. I want to be mindful of our time for today. And so you have the space to, you know, talk about nutrition and whatever it might be that could be really helpful as a way to kind of cut them off tactfully. I mean, the word cut them off, that 
is harsh. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's and honestly, you know, as an outsider, I that just is uncomfortable. I would think the the smart thing to do, or at least the generous thing to do, would be a little be more flexible with your time if you can and try to work that in in a more natural way because a lot of these counseling services even in even in healthcare when i was working in a hospital and i would be there to talk to a patient about a specific thing it's it's mostly about the experience like like you said you know you don't want them to come away from the appointment feeling like they didn't learn anything but they're going to come away from it feeling good if they feel good coming out of the appointment yeah i'm not saying you want to manipulate people and like you know charge their insurance to have a half hour conversation about their kids or their their cat or something but yeah you have to be mindful of of the fact that they're human beings and they have a life and a story and maybe you are one of the few points of contact they have at that point where they have the ability to freely associate like what they're thinking yeah and i think it depends too you know like a lot of times when I have clients that kind of go off on something, whatever the topic is, it is still kind of important for me to know a lot of what they might be saying because it helps me to understand them and maybe what barriers they face or other kinds of things that can impact just their overall wellness. So that's also where kind of the skill of counseling comes in too, is to actively listen to what the client is saying, but also maybe pick out areas that can relate to dietetics, nutrition, wellness as a whole, you know, so maybe I have a client who's kind of going on about their kids and, and, you know, how they're running this person to this place and they might go on for a couple minutes. That tells me that maybe they have a lot going on in terms of time. So when we talk about like healthy eating, we can't be talking about recipes that are going to take three hours, you know, not that anyone wants to spend that much time maybe on a recipe anyway. So I might say, you know, time is something that you're, you're struggling with. And I'm probably not saying this right right now but anyway timing seems like a challenge in your life right now blah 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 how do we yeah you know and so when we think about meal planning and prepping you know what might be realistic here and so i'm tying in what they've said highlighting the fact that they do have other things going on i'm listening to what they are saying and then bringing it back to nutrition a little bit so there's certainly ways you can you know build that conversation yeah it's useful information to know about a client it's just you know at a certain point it, it can't consume the whole the whole, the whole appointment, yeah. obviously. But getting to know someone personally, and you're in this type of service, is probably really valuable. Yeah, and I will say that I've never really had a client who takes up the entire time not talking about nutrition. Usually it's maybe a little bit more than usual, so like five or 10 minutes of the hour appointment. Let's just say that they've you know, used to talk more about stuff that has maybe nothing to do with, with nutrition or very small amounts, but you know, it's, it's still something that I'll have clients, I'll give them the space to talk, you know, and you won't always know what to say there um, necessarily to respond, but I always just say like, thank you for sharing this with me. And, you know, and a lot of times I'll have a client at the end of it say like, I'm sorry, I know I just unloaded on you. I just, you know, sometimes that actually helps to get them into the mindset of, being in the session a little bit more presently the rest of it because sometimes if they don't get it out they're actively thinking about it and so them kind of just dumping on me whatever it is and me listening and acknowledging that I've heard that sometimes can actually leave a lot more space for us to really talk wellness and nutrition for the rest of the session so consider that well it kind of comes with the territory if you're going to get into healthcare, especially you know if you're not going to get into something on the back end like the revenue cycle if you're going to be interfacing with people 
you have to assume that at some point you're going to be on the receiving end of personal stuff. It comes with the territory and you're going to mm-hmm. have to, you know, that goes for like doctors, nurses, CNAs, any level of care where you're interfacing with a patient or a client, you're going to end up having conversations that aren't related to healthcare. And that's kind of part of healthcare at this point. It is. And honestly, there's always some way you could tie it back into wellness and nutrition and, and dietetics. So there's always something in there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's valuable to engage with that stuff. Any tips for someone new to counseling clients? Big, hot stuff. Big tips here. What do we think? Top three things. So I think the biggest thing is thinking in terms of a partnership and a collaboration. And actually, a lot of people will ask me, like, what's your approach to nutrition? And that's the biggest thing is that I collaborate with my clients. So it's not just me saying you need to do this, this and this. And that's it. That's the end of it. You know, it's it's us dialoguing together and being able to understand, okay, what's working, what's not, how can we troubleshoot, but the client knows themselves best. So the more that I can emphasize that kind of partnership and collaboration, the best. Um, and, and I find that most of the time clients might tell you that they want you to tell them what to do, but it's really finding a good balance between recommending and, and education and then also, you know, actively listening and having them contribute ideas. So I think the, again, the kind of the idea of a partnership. Um, the other big thing is, you know, again, thinking about the client of they are the expert. So they're the expert in their own life. And as much in terms of tips that I can give, it needs to be realistic as to what's going to work for them. So it doesn't mean to continually ask your client, what do you think? What will you do? Because that can get pretty frustrating pretty fast. <laughs> so find a nice balance between, you know, asking what they already know, asking what's already worked or maybe not. And then giving them some information or education in small bits. Um, But that's going to be a really big key too. Um, The more practice you can get, the better. So that's another thing is that, you know, when you come out of your dietetics um, undergrad and you come out of the internship, you've had some practice, but really getting into the sessions, you'll start to kind of find your groove. So it'll take some time, but uh, just know that. Yeah, your your first few appointments are going to be rocky, and if they're not, the next few will. So at some point, you're going to have some turbulence. Fail early and often. Yes, is the expression because the sooner you get it out of the way, the better. There's a famous story by the comedian Dave Chappelle about uh, failing, and um, he actually had what he views as an unfortunate situation where his first bunch of shows, the first few years of his career were amazing, outstanding, and he was on this high. And then he bombed like three or four years into his career, and it just completely rocked him. And most comedians start with bombing a few shows and then build their way up. And he said it was way worse for him, and he didn't know how to accept it, and it really messed him up. So like he's talked about it as a way of like framing failure in a way that helps you, and it's always going to be valuable to learn the limits and fail and then assess and move forward early rather than like you know later so if you're not being challenged by your first few clients and you're everything's going really well right away there might be some cause for concern there maybe yeah (laughs) just be ready for your first several appointments to to vary and you're you know you're not going to be an expert right off the bat no and and one thing too because i think a lot of times and, and i've even felt this you know when i first started is that i don't know enough and that you know the client won't be getting enough from me and it's not it's not always about education and how many resources you could provide or how much information you could block into 60 minutes you know a lot of this also comes with 
just listening to your client and, you know, asking questions and being engaged with them. So that the actual, like how you go about the session with them. So sometimes we worry so much about, you know, I find that I was worrying so much about like a checklist and making sure that I provided education on this, 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 and this. So that otherwise they wouldn't feel like they got a great appointment. But honestly, it was more about like being present in the session myself and listening to what they were saying and hearing what they were saying. And you could always follow up with resources later. And a lot of times I'll ask a client, you know, if they wanted a resource on something and a lot of times they didn't They just kind of wanted someone to put something in simpler terms about what a carbohydrate was or what some examples of carbs were. So you're not necessarily going to just be in a session and providing education for 60 minutes too. So. Yeah, there's a lot that can, there's a lot of ways it can go quite a variance. Um, speaking of variance, there's a lot of different ways you can go in your career as a dietitian. There's a lot of different directions you could go. Um, given that there are so many options, how did you figure out which direction you wanted to go in with your career as a dietitian? So definitely volunteering, working, shadowing, uh, just kind of helped me initially with interest. So I started by, I actually shadowed a dietitian and then I ended up working in the, um, the food service department. Didn't you shadow the clinical nutrition manager at a hospital? That's yes. how you started, right? Yeah. That was your first exposure. Like that's as clinical as clinical can get. Yeah. And I only thought that there was, you know, clinical and working at WIC as like the major options. I really wasn't exposed. And that, this is before I went into dietetics, like as an undergrad. This was in high school, wasn't it? Yeah, this was in high school. So just to kind of get a taste, I had um, was shadowing a clinical nutrition manager at a at hospital. Um, it actually was only for a few days. And then I ended up in the kitchen just because the dietitian wasn't on site all the times that I was there. And so it ended up me being in the kitchen and then ended up with a job in food service, food service as a food nutrition aide. But being able to do that, I had a better understanding of actually the food service space and um, I got to interact a little bit with what, you know, a dietitian might do in that space too. So I got a little bit more of an understanding of clinical and food service management. Yeah, you worked in a uh, call center for a while and you did uh, patient orders and you worked on stuff with the system too. And you did a little bit with like the diet or you learned about it in the yeah. clinical setting in an official capacity, call center. Hi, welcome to whatever food nutrition. My name's Felicia. Can I, what can I get for you for? And then you would talk to patients if they had a, you know, if they had restrictions and stuff. It was, mm -hmm. it was really good experience and exposure if you think yeah. about it. It was a great job and I, I really recommend that for any student or, you know, before you become a student is to get into that kind of space, long-term care, you know, inpatient clinical. Um, but that really helped and it actually <laughs> helped me to kind of figure out what I didn't want to do because I knew I kind of didn't really want to be in the clinical space necessarily. You really won't know until you're actually in your internship. So, you know, volunteering, shadowing, uh, seeing if you can, um, you know, shadow a dietitian in private practice, you know, or shadow a dietitian in clinical and, and those spaces. But when you get into your internship, you're going to be exposed to a lot of different areas of dietetics and you're obviously going to be working with the dietitian. So it'll be a, a much closer look at all of these different spaces, because even with clinical, you know, I kind of had an understanding that I didn't want to do clinical, but I also didn't really understand everything that was involved in clinical and all the places you can be. And so gave me a better appreciation actually going through the internship of what inpatient clinical can look like. Um, but being able to look at job alerts too, that can also help just to understand like what kinds of jobs are out there and to, again, give you a little bit of an understanding of what the field might look like. Uh, networking and chatting with other dietitians. So being involved in like different groups on campus. Um, I'm actually going to be talking at a student dietetic association 
meeting next year at like in a different state. Uh, but those kinds of organizations, they bring in dietitians often to speak um, so you can get an understanding of what their jobs might look like. Um, anywhere you can kind of volunteer can be really helpful too. And generally it's easier to get into volunteer services than it is to get into a, an official like employment capacity with, with an organization. Hospitals, long-term care might have volunteer positions. I don't know. Hospitals yeah. definitely do. Stuff in the community, you know, you could, you could do stuff um, maybe at a community center, like a Y, stuff like that. I'm sure there's stuff. Yeah. And even, you know, I'm saying volunteering, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in the food nutrition department per se. You know, if there's a volunteer position and you know that a dietitian is staffed in that facility, you might also get in a little bit with being able to volunteer and then maybe being able to actually, you know, connect with the dietitian that's there once you're kind of having your foot in the door a little bit too. So, you know, just consider those kinds of things too. Yeah. Lots of avenues to gain access to dietitians and stuff dealing with dietetics any way you can. Mm -hmm. So what is your favorite part of dietetics or, you know, what is your favorite like piece of dietetics and uh, being in this field? It's sort of a broad question, but I know you've gotten that a few times. Yeah. I've gotten this one a whole bunch actually from some students. Um, and one of the biggest things that I like about dietetics is that there's just so many options in terms of what opportunities you can be involved in as a dietitian. So everything from like private practice to teaching to working, you know, in the military. So there's so much space for different avenues. Um, I personally enjoy being able to teach. So I like teaching, which is what I'm doing right now. To clarify, she's talking about teaching at a college. You teach nutrition at a college to nursing students and whoever. Yeah. So, and, and before that I was working, um, I worked, two jobs. I was working in a nonprofit community center um, and I was doing one-on-one counseling, but I was also running classes. So I was doing classes for adults and kids. And then I also, I was a retail dietitian. And so I did one-on-ones, I did store tours, but I also did classes there too. And I really enjoy the education piece and kind of demystifying. Is it a secret that the community center was a YMCA? No, I just didn't know people knew what a Y was. Yeah, YMCA is pretty, in the United States, pretty popular thing, community center for like activities and stuff, but you drop your kids off, swim in the pool, all that kind of thing. <laughs> and then the grocery store was yeah. where you were a retail dietitian. You were a retail dietitian at a grocery store. At a so grocery store. Community dietitian at a YMCA, retail dietitian at a grocery store, obviously your private practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just in your short career of, of eight or 12 years or whatever it's been, you've worked in like several facets of food and nutrition, even some that you weren't exposed to in your internship. Yeah. And even some of them too, like I was doing a lot of cooking classes at one point with my practice um, and then also cooking demos as a retail dietitian. But you know, when I thought of like cooking and food, I was always thinking kind of food service management and not necessarily in the community. And so that was kind of a different space too, is running like a class and being able to talk about nutrition and whatever, you know, ingredient I'm using and having people taste it and then having like this healthy recipe that people enjoyed, uh, was really fun too. So that, that's what I, I mean, I really just like the education piece, but it could be in not so formal places too. It could be smaller bits, like with a class, you know, in the community, or it could be something like, you know, at a college university. Um, but that's, that's kind of yeah. At one point, you were you were working for like a contract company that would send you over to these places mm -hmm. to uh, do these cooking demos and classes. And at one point, you were in a commercial that was on was. TV, and you were on like billboards and stuff downtown. I'm, it was. I still am on a. It's a side of a newspaper stand. I'm like, there's like six people behind me, and I'm mixing. 
I was make, making salsa for it um, because it was nice and bright and colorful. But I I must have stirred this bowl like for ten minutes while they took pictures. Oh, when they were doing the shoot, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was really fun. I mean, everyone got to taste the salsa after. But um, all kinds of stuff yeah. though. That's options. I mean, there's so many options for dietetics. It's crazy, and you know you don't think about it, but man, it's so broad. It's way broader than than a lot of fields. I find what you can do. So um so that's your sort of favorite part about dietetics just just a vast vast array of options Mm -hmm. what made you become a health coach along with being a dietitian so you have a certification you're a certified health coach is that the title yeah so i'm nationally board certified as a health and wellness coach national board certified health and wellness coach more letters after her name because you know she needed another (laughs) three or four letters after the 15 she's already got or whatever it is yeah madness your your signature is like out of control it's soup at this point yeah well (laughs) hey that's what they say alphabet soup that's what you want um do you find this to be helpful with your practice how do you incorporate it with clients so i actually find this i only ended up going the wrong talk about the certificate for just like a little bit just to just give some background yeah so if you were anything like me where i had no idea what a health coach did and i thought it was a silly field um originally until i actually got into it and realized that this is actually a really beneficial field and there are certainly in any spaces people who are not following their scope of practice and people that are so is health coach a protected term no so So anyone can call themselves a health coach but if they don't have the letters and they're not, you know, certified, then it's just kind of whatever they're saying it is. Yeah. So like anyone can call themselves a health coach. There's the NBC HWC, which is the credential. at the end of my signature. Um, that is the national board certification. So I sat for an exam, just like you would for a dietitian exam. You have to meet certain competencies and things like that before you're actually able to. You went through a course too. Yeah. So you have to go through a course. There's also a certain number of coaching sessions that you have to do. Um, and you have to go through an approved training course and then you're eligible to sit for the exam. So I actually only considered it because where I worked, they were creating a health coach certificate program. And I didn't realize that you needed to be a health coach in order to create this program. <laughs> so the college you're working at, they were putting together a certificate program to add to their, their list of certificate students could pursue. And yes. they were building a curriculum for that program. So you got certified in order to help build that. Essentially, it's, it's your project and you end up putting it together. Yeah. And I didn't realize that you, again, needed to like have this approved training program. And so um, it just exposed me to the field a little bit more. But um, I've met a lot of really great health coaches actually through the program that I did. Um, some of them are, are actually psychologists who went back to get the certification so they can better help, you know, their clients. Um, I've had people who are in like the nursing space and did uh, health coaching again to better serve where the position is. And then some people going back as like a second career, you know, and, and getting this health coach certification um, as an alternative and doing something else that maybe they were in an arts major before or something else like that. Um, but I feel like now it's actually helped me be a better dietitian and be better with how I've run my sessions because I'm actually more in tune with motivational interviewing, which I learned about in, in my undergrad um, as a dietetic student. And it's something that you learn throughout your internship, but it is a huge, huge focus of the health coach curriculum um, as this partnership approach, this motivational interviewing and and this kind of facilitating change. And I think that there's just not enough time spent on that in the dietetics undergrad degree, at least when I was in my undergrad. You know, you learn a lot about 
medical nutrition therapy and all the science behind everything, but sometimes not necessarily on the behavior change as much, which is a lot of where I spend my time in private practice is behavior change with people. Um, so I, I really just feel like it made me a better dietitian. So I kind of infuse it in a lot of what I do because I can't really separate the two. You know, there's spaces where I'm talking about, you know, diets for diabetes and carbohydrate counts and all that kind of stuff. But along with it, you know, recognizing what stage of change somebody is in, you know, and what kind of information is most appropriate in that stage for them, you know, to help them move forward, um, to help facilitate the change process. So I definitely just feel like it's made me a better dietitian, really having kind of this really deep dive into uh, motivational interviewing. Definitely related, heavily crosses over with a lot of things and it only adds more versatility to your toolkit really it can only help and uh you know it's not the only extra certificate felicia has that relates to her field she's also a personal trainer a csm yes is your is your certification yeah Yeah, it's acsm and nasm are the are the big ones she went acsm so she is a certified personal trainer also Mm -hmm. what made you pursue that and by the way it may be, it may seem kind of intimidating to like a student or something that you have all this stuff. This isn't, she didn't just jump into all this stuff right off the bat. Like Felicia finished her undergrad, did her internship and became an RD. Yes. And then she did that for a little while. Then she went back and got her master's mm-hmm. eventually. And then she became a personal trainer later. And this was all over the span of like 10 years or whatever yeah. it was. And yeah. It, it wasn't just like a boom, you know, you're 30, you're young, but are, are you 30? Young. I'm 31. Yeah. You're, oh my gosh. So old. Oh my God. <laughs> You're gonna be walking with a with a with a cane soon. I know. You're gonna Better be get it out. dragging you around. <laughs> so um, you you know you've had a, a short-ish career and you're young, but like this is not. You can you can definitely accumulate this stuff over time. You don't need to jump in all this crap. Yeah. It's just Felicia's an overachiever. Don't mind her. <laughs> so you um, but you're a personal trainer. Yeah. How does it help? How what, how do you integrate it? So I actually first thought about becoming a trainer, and that, I think it's really great that you mentioned that because I kind of as these things kind of fell in front of me in terms of like my clients were asking a lot about fitness. And as a dietitian, you could talk about fitness, but I was having clients ask about like actual training programs and what exercises to do and stuff that was definitely out of my scope as the dietitian and talking generally about, you know, exercise. So that was kind of why I went the route of becoming a personal trainer. I was doing a lot of face-to-face one-on-one sessions. And so I did actually some group fitness classes um, and like outside at a park. And then I was doing individual training in home for clients. So a lot of my clients didn't necessarily want to go to a gym, um, you know, in terms of whether it was time or having young kids. And so I would go to them, bring some like easy equipment along with me. And then that way they like bands and stuff like that. Um, so now, actually, I, I don't do a lot of one-on-one training anymore, but now because I have the personal training certification, I'm able to teach a couple of classes at the college I work at because I have that, um, you know, with like some fitness and wellness type thing. So it's nutrition and the fitness together, but I'm like in a fitness center teaching a class. So uh, the background actually then served me well later, even though I don't use it as much um, as when I originally did when I first started working with my clients one-on-one. So it definitely helps if clients are asking about fitness stuff that you have a certification and that it's not out of your scope of practice to talk mm-hmm. about that stuff as an RD because you happen to have a personal trainer cert as well. So it mm-hmm. allows you to expand your scope of practice, just like the health 
coach, well, the health coach thing didn't really expand your scope. Yeah, it didn't really expand my scope. It just kind of like better. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> scope of practice for a health coach is within the scope of practice of a dietitian. Yes. It's much smaller, much mm-hmm. more narrow. But as a personal trainer, there were things that were sort of out of your scope as a dietitian talking about you know, um, lifting regimens or like cardio or like workout scheduling or, yeah. you know, overload, progression of overload, you know, like all those yeah. weird terms in, in, in working out that you are now qualified to talk about and integrate with your practice. Yes. Officially yeah. because you have because a certification, it's a national, nationally recognized internationally or just the United States, American, okay. something, something. Yeah. But anyway, it's at least nationally recognized. So yes. you're official. Um, it's not out of your scope of practice. So is there, is there anything that you find particularly frustrating in the field of dietetics? What's really been, what's been grinding your gears really? So something that I find a lot of dietitians and students are not so fond of is the unpaid internship. So you pay them a uh, fee to do the internship and then you're also unpaid, uh, throughout that program. So that's the biggest thing I find as to being frustrated, um, about it. And then also, you know, the misinformation gets me, you know, everyone's a nutrition expert because they eat. So that's, uh, something you constantly are, are battling, but, um, well, not only that, but there is misinformation. There are people who are just straight up peddling snake oil yeah. in this field that are just, they're looking to make money. God, there are bodybuilders who are jacked and huge and ripped because they're juicing, they're on steroids, and then they sell their workout plan or their diet plan as though it's an accurate representation of what's going to get someone to be 250 and stacked. It's like, bro, you're you're on a cycle right now. That's why you're huge. Yeah. But yeah, it's totally your team that's <laughs> going to get me ripped. Sure. I'm sure, you know, less for you probably because of your clientele, but yeah. it's still out there in the zeitgeist of nutrition and it is, oh my God, even as a person who's not an expert, it's like, you got to be kidding me. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, you have to battle misinformation left and right, even still with your field, with yeah. what you do. And that's, you know, one of those things that being tactful about how you address that with clients because they'll come to you with you know, misinformation in an appointment or, um, and so how do you handle that too? So it's, you know, acknowledging and then also trying to, you know, break apart that, <laughs> that aspect too. So, all right. So let's, uh, we're going to shift a little bit more into the, the ins and outs of private practice specifically and dig in here. So, and look at the business side of things sort of. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll, I'll have all this chaptered out on YouTube. This one's an easy one to do that for. Um, if you're on podcasting, just saying there is a visual component. Come join us on YouTube. Easier to see your questions, comments, concerns over on YouTube.com slash my something. I don't think we have it. We don't Whatever. have it. There's a, link. <laughs> a bunch yeah. of letters. So, um, so for your private practice, how long did it actually take to launch the private practice? How long did it take to really get the wheels turning for this? So about a year from when I originally started working on the business. So I like created the business in 2015. When you say created the business, what does that mean? So that's when I actually officially registered it for in Pennsylvania and I became an insurance provider. So before that, I literally had a website. So I, but you, when you registered it, did you, did you register it as like a sole proprietor with the states with the state of Pennsylvania, which is where we are. So you and you had to pay for that and do some paperwork. Yeah. So the um the first thing that I when I first started in 2014, I really just had a blog and a website. I didn't do anything. 2015 was when I actually really hit the ball 
the ground running and I, you know, created the the actual sole proprietor, yeah, did you, the doing business as, all that stuff. It's too. a business entity that you associated with your brand. Yes. So your brand became a business entity or like you associated a business entity with your brand. Yeah. So yeah. like kind of semantic, I'm getting into the weeds here, but it's, it's important. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things you can't do if you're not like incorporated or established as a sole proprietor or, or whatever. Yeah. And it's also important like tax stuff and all that, but we actually have a video on the first steps to starting a private practice too. So if Link in the description, if you're in that um, space YouTube for that one, short form. So I, I started becoming uh, the process of becoming an insurance provider, which I'm in network. And then I also started my master's. Um, and then I also quit my one job working in the community as a, a dietitian at a YMCA and started working full-time actually as a retail dietitian. So 2015 was when I kind of started really doing everything. Um, I had a few issues along the way in terms of was in a bad car accident. So it kind of slowed a little bit of what I did. But, yeah. Yeah. It was a setback. Um, bit but, of a setback. Yeah. So then 2016, I actually started seeing clients. I started doing more networking. I joined a chamber of commerce um, in my area. And so I was able to kind of network with other businesses. I started getting more influx of clients that way. And then I finished my master's in that September. Um, and then I quit my full-time job working as a retail dietitian, um, in December of 2016. So it was a year that I really kind of officially got the business registered, became an insurance provider, and then started seeing clients and building up my client load on the side of my full-time job. And then I, you know, quit that and then just had the business. So it really was about a year that it took me uh, to get it rolling. And it won't necessarily take you that long. Some idiot may not T-bone your car while they're doing their makeup while they're driving. So, you know, wait until you get to where you're going. You know, whatever. I Anytime I think about your accident, I... Anyway, it's not necessarily going to take you that long. Mm. Um, you know, if you follow the steps, it could be as little as six months. It depends on how long it takes your state to sort of ratify your 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 pursuance of the business entity and all that yeah and the insurance provider process like i i felt good about a year because i was working full-time still and building the business on the side and kind of getting to a space where you know what feels comfortable for me to quit my job and this is actually something i could do as my sole source of income so for me it was that year it gave me that space to really you know finish up with the masters and then also you know deal with the personal stuff but also the fact of like getting clients and not feeling so rushed through the process uh, because I had a steady source of income on the side but that's going to look different for everybody uh, but that was kind of the time frame that worked for me and it could take you two, three years to really get off the ground depending on your financial situation and if you're working and setting this up part-time Take your time. There's no yeah. rush. I mean, it's not like the clients, they're not going anywhere. No. <laughs> um, you are not going to have trouble getting people who, because anyone, it's, you know, we have an aging population. There is a need for this stuff right now. So don't feel like you need to rush into it to really capitalize. Yeah. So um, how hard is it to run your practice? What's the most difficult thing you do day to day? So probably just managing everything and making sure that you're doing everything right. You know, so what does that mean, <laughs> managing everything? It's so really vague. It is, but it's juggling the client load, you know, the actual business stuff too. So like, you know, taxes. And I have an accountant, you know, and I consult with an attorney at this point. But you work with a CPA to yes. do your books and taxes and stuff. You do have a lawyer, but not officially on retainer or anything like that. Yeah, There's someone you work with. It's, yeah, contract or, you know, consultant-based 
when I need him, basically. But he doesn't do retainers. But it it's actually works better <laughs> that way. Um, Probably cheaper. Yeah, it is. And, you know, not you don't really know kind of what you don't know when you start a practice, too, is kind of figuring things out. You don't know what you don't know. (laughs) Words of wisdom. Um, So my uh, dietitian journey 2021. (laughs) But that's something that, you know, you're you're managing being a dietitian, you know, and, and working with clients and learning all the things and continuing education and then also like running a business and you know, keeping track of your finances and, um, you know, what overhead expenses you have. And then, so you just don't really always know what to do. And that's kind of when you're running a business, that's what happens. Um, so I'd say that that's the difficult part is just kind of all of you're you're juggling, (laughs) you're spinning multiple plates. It's, it's keeping the ball in the air. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, don't rush into it and, Mm -hmm. and ask questions, seek out help when you need it. Take your time. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, it's a good it's a good thing to just ease yourself into if you don't feel comfortable. But what, what would you say is um, uh, the most rewarding part of your practice? So I, I love having a practice because I can just be able to do what I love. You know, I can change and adapt to like really what's fulfilling to me, like with the My Dietitian Journey stuff. Um, you know, be able to be flexible and creative, I think was something that was just important to me when I was working as an employee for somebody is that I wanted to be able to create my own schedule, decide what I was going to write a blog about, you know, what to teach, what handouts to create and not have to run it by somebody uh, for approval. And then also how I run my sessions. So that was the, probably the biggest thing is being able to, you know, be creative, be flexible and just do exactly what I want to do in my practice. So that's, yeah, you can say you're your own boss for that and it's, you have control. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people want, and rightfully so. It's a yeah. huge benefit. So, um, in speaking of, of controlling things and controlling your time, how many hours do you work per day, per week, ballpark in your practice? And how many clients do you typically see daily or weekly? However, you think is valuable to break it out. So it really is going to depend on the time of, you know, the 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 week, the day, and the time of the year because. I tend to get lots of clients actually during this time frame of like August, September, and October. And then like no one wants to see me after Thanksgiving. <laughs> so my client Wait, so why? Why do you get so many in August, September? Why? Uh, people are getting back into a routine with like school and work a little bit more. So oh, start of the school year. The end of oh, summer yeah, and yeah, vacations. And so people are kind of like, okay, time to get ready about They don't <laughs> want to see you in June or July because they're going away and they're eating lots of, hey, that's what I, when I go on vacation, anything goes. I tighten it up most of the year, but pff, I mean, don't talk to me. I'm 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 drinking tequila through a straw that I made out of a fruit roll up in in July, August. Right back in there, yeah, totally eating beans and stuff. But don't, yeah, you know. but I that's get, a, it makes sense. It is. It kind of ebbs and flows. Um, I might see ten to fifteen clients a week um, at one hour sessions, and then there's some weeks that I have like one client or no clients. So it really varies. Um, my time is it's hard to kind of calculate the time sometimes because. You know, I have the time in sessions of like, you know, 15 hours, let's just say for 15 appointments. But then there's the time with like creating an outline or billing or following up on claims or, you know, recording videos and stuff like that. And so I would say now I spend way less time than when I first started because I'm more efficient with my time. And I have to be because I'm also, you know, I have the business and I have the Peraz nutrition side, the My Dietitian Journey side, and then also teaching. Uh, so I have to be very careful about how I spend my time. Um, but 
it really does vary. And and, and one thing about this question, because I get this question a lot and I see it a lot in a lot of the groups that I'm in, is that, you know, your measure of success is not necessarily based on how many clients you see or how much time you spend, because it will vary on what you're doing. You know, so I see less clients now because, you know, I, I have a core group of clients, but I also do other stuff like with the My Dietitian Journey stuff. And so my client basis has changed quite a bit from when I first started. So just something to keep in mind. Okay. You just gave a non-answer. I'm going to be honest with you. How many hours did you spend last week in your private practice? So probably about 20 hours. Okay. And (laughs) is that typical for this time of year? Because also with teaching in September, October, November, it's heavier. Do you spend more hours per week during other parts of the year? Yeah. So I tend to spend around like 20 to 25 hours during like these kind of peak times and then anywhere from like you know, 10 maybe hours average if it's a non-peak time or like five to 10, I would say, if it's like non-peak time. And one of the things with with how many hours per week is that it's a sliding scale in that if you want to spend more time doing certain things, you can. Yeah. If you want to spend more time, you know, working things out or for, for you specifically, because we have the My Dietitian Journey component, you can sink 50 hours in a week if you wanted to. Yeah. Writing and and you know, filming and all that stuff. But for you with your practice as just a practice, it's more about the seeing clients and everything like that. And that's typically, like you said, 20 hours last week or whatever it was. And it could be five to 10 hours depending on what's going on. And if, if you have more time, if you are looking to do this as your sole source of income, you, the listener, you, the future dietitian, you can totally spend 40, 50, 60 hours Mm -hmm. a week on this if you wanted to and have it be your sole source of income, get more clients, spend more time doing things. You can do that. There was a time where that was what you did. Yeah. So the period where you only did your private practice, how many hours a week were you working? So I was seeing about 20 clients a week, um, anywhere from 10 to 20 clients, because it, it depended on if I was going on site for a business, I would see like a brick of clients. So I might see 10 in a day um, in like shorter appointment timeframes. But I was spending way more time on the business, like actually working on the business figuring stuff out, figuring out how to do billing, what billing even entailed, like how to file a claim. And so I was spending probably like 50 hours a week just like seeing clients and figuring out the business back end of everything. I mean, you were doing all kinds of stuff. You were figuring out how to work with insurance companies. You were learning how to end building your website. You were working through the financials and stuff for your books and tax purposes and trying to figure things out with the CPA. There was it was everything. Yeah. And then networking, that was a lot of time too, like going to events and answering emails and reaching out to people too. Like that took a lot of time. So always be networking. Oh gosh. This one. always A B N. Always be networking. So yeah, but that's it's up to you. So that when it was Felicia's only thing, it was a full time fifty plus. Sometimes you were burning the midnight oil. Yeah. You know, twelve hour days. Something, you know, when you're trying to get off the ground, hey, it's up to you. You don't have to do that. Yeah. And now that she's a full-time college instructor, very involved in the college, it's more of a 10 to 20, 25, depending on the time of year and um, what's going on that week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just to give it like a solid number of hours. And the, you, know, you said you said 20 clients per week when you're at your peak. And yeah. it, it might only be like five now per week. Yeah, it, it, it really depends. Like this week I had four clients this week and next week I have 15 on my schedule. So I have, but I have a block of clients on a Friday that I'm seeing. And come January. Oh boy. Well, it's funny because you know what? Come January, I usually, the first week of January, I don't get a lot of people 
Because a lot of times people are joining programs and like doing stuff already. The gyms are blowing up in January. Yeah, and they're like really motivated. I actually get a lot more people in February when all the oh, diets fail off. and they fall <laughs> off track. <laughs> nice. And they, that's great, you know, because there a lot of times people are motivated without seeing me before that. So that actually yes, is my peak. You benefit from their failure. <laughs> Not that I want that, but yeah. Well, it's come. Oh my it god, January is such a weird time for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them. I love the gyms in, in January. All the New Year's warriors in there slinging weights, flipping battle ropes, <laughs> speeding down the treadmill. It's great, and then empties out in February. It's wonderful. I usually we used to we used to avoid the gyms uh, in January for that. Yeah. Express purpose. <laughs> so, uh, what does a day in the life look like for a private practice dietitian? And I guess if you can remember back to when it was the only thing you were doing, maybe start with that, and then we can move into what it looks like now that you have a full time job on top of your practice. So, when you were the dietitian full time private practice, what did your days typically compose? Where were they composed of? So, I at first when I started, I was seeing clients all over the place and. At any times. Um, this is prior to the pandemic, prior to telehealth taking over. Yeah. Um, when I kind of started to get into a schedule, I was seeing clients usually Monday to Wednesday or Monday to Thursday. And so usually it was like a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Wednesday, I was doing actually cooking classes still. So I was going downtown. So that was actually a big block of my time where I would travel downtown because I didn't drive. So I was taking a train, setting up for a class, doing an hour cooking class and then breaking down and stuff. So that was actually most of my Wednesdays that tended to be. And then Fridays I was usually actually doing, I was doing a contract um, with the same company for uh, webinars or seminars, now webinars, but seminars. So I was going face to face. So I accounted for travel those times. The Monday, Tuesday and Thursday, I was seeing clients face to face and I was doing home visits at the time. So uh, Mondays and when Mondays and Tuesdays tended to be my face to face where I was actually going to client homes. And so I would have clients all day long. Um, but they weren't black back to back. They weren't back to back because I couldn't really do a lot of back to back appointments. I would try to get people in the same areas at the same time, but it didn't always work that way. So there was travel involved, usually an hour session spent in home. And then one of those days might be on site at a company or I was involved in my chamber of commerce as a member, so I would actually use their office. So I would see a brick of clients those days. I usually, I was prioritizing the client appointments and then I was doing the business stuff that I needed to on like Fridays or at nights. So like creating handouts, creating lesson plans was like a weekend thing, a night thing, or like a Friday thing, but it was kind of like whenever it fit. Um, it wasn't something I really had on like a schedule because it was just trying to see clients. Just, just to clarify, when you say creating lesson plans, at one point you were creating lesson plans for like Teachers Pay Teachers, yeah. which was a site that teachers use to buy lesson plans for classes and other teachers sell them. Yeah. So I was creating lessons for like the seminars I was doing and then also for the the cooking outlines and like I had to create a recipe and a handout and like submit it because they were using it through an app too. Um, and then I was creating those same um, outlines and lesson plans and putting them into a format for teachers pay teachers to sell them too. So they had to look nice. <laughs> yeah. Cause I don't know if people understand that there was a time where you weren't a teacher, but you were building lesson plans for a variety of reasons. You yes. weren't like a college instructor. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your sort of like a weekly thing. I remember that where you would sort of break out clients for certain days and then like Fridays would be a little looser mm -hmm. and you'd work on back end business stuff at home Yeah, and you would travel uh, a lot the rest of the week doing things as your, as your private practice self. Yeah. When, uh, when the world still worked that way and hopefully it will yes. <laughs> soon enough, but you know, we'll see. Uh, now, nowadays, these days in recent history, 
what does your day-to-day look like when you're focused on the practice? So during like the teaching months, so like end of August to May, Monday to Thursdays, I teach in the morning. Um, and then I usually see clients like one o'clock or two o'clock and then later until six on Monday through Wednesday. So that's my open time for clients. Thursdays, I don't see clients anymore. It just gives me space to like catch up on things. And when you say see clients, you are, it's telehealth, you are on a phone call or a video session from our, from your office to their phone, their computer. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not doing any like in-person sessions right now. Um, And then, well, Thursday was originally a podcast day, but it doesn't work to do those anymore. (laughs) It's way too much during the week. It's just too busy, yeah. So Fridays tend to be my my block of clients in the morning. So I start usually at like 7 or 7.30 with my first appointment. And then I usually go until like 1 or 3 o'clock, depending on when I have clients scheduled. But Fridays are like my morning client days. And then in between those clients, I... I do billing right after I see a client. So I create the report um, or write the report and then I create the claim and submit it right away. Fridays also be the is the day that I spend prepping for appointments. So I make sure I have everything on file for next week. I look at paperwork. I return calls. I create materials if I need to. Um, so that tends to be like my Friday of more like a work day. And then usually Saturday and Sunday, I split my time with some stuff relating to teaching, grading and whatnot, but then also any like business stuff that I need to catch up on. But, uh, and when you say business stuff you need to catch up on, it's billing, it's looking at some numbers for the financial stuff. It might be some networking things. It's a variety of things there that you might need to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it too, like right now with like the, my dietitian journey piece of it is, you know, kind of more formal business documents that need to be created or filed. And so it's, you know, sometimes researching and figuring out what I need to do <laughs> and then figuring out when I'm going to do it during the week. So. Yeah. I think these questions are well, are well meaning when people ask them to you, but it's the answer is like, usually it depends because it's, <laughs> it's all dependent upon what you want to do. And no one's no one, no individual's private practice is going to look like yours or anyone else's. It's, it's very individual, not to mention, you know, and, and this will lead into our next question, but you could specialize in a certain thing and do stuff that's way different than what Felicia does. Yeah. You could focus on group classes if you wanted to. You could focus on trying to do speaking at, at companies and do like workshops with people if you wanted to. You don't have to do one-on-one counseling. You don't have to accept insurance. Yeah, You could do other stuff. Plenty of other stuff you could do within your private practice. So speaking of, of uh, you know, um, how you do things and what you choose to do, how do you determine the clients you work with? So I really don't turn anybody away unless it's somebody who is out of my scope of practice. So like with um, eating disorders, it's not something I specialize in. Um, Renal disease, not something I specialize in or working with like young children. Um, So usually I have like a screening process, like a free call or when people call to schedule. Um, But most of the time I I do end up working with most clients who find me. Um, A lot of times people will just find me through you know, they'll Google and find me in their area or if not their insurance company. Um, but I, I, I generally don't have some, there's some dietitians, like we were just saying that have particular specialties that they only work with. Um, and I'm a little bit more generalized, um, of, of who I would work with. It's just, again, if it's out of my scope, that's when I refer out. And when you refer out, you refer generally to dietitians that are in your network that you know, you know some people who do more with renal disease or eating disorders, so you refer those clients to another expert 
who has more of a background in that stuff. Yeah. And even for some instances too, like I've, I've had clients who want face-to-face appointments right now and I'm only doing telehealth um, and probably will only do telehealth moving forward. And so I refer to a few dietitians that I know in the area that are seeing people face-to-face. So it might be someone I would work with, but they want a face-to-face appointment. So. Has has anyone ever referred a client to you because of something that you specialize in? Yeah, so I've actually had quite a few dietitians or, or a few dietitians that um, will refer to me because of plant based. I focus a lot on plant based eating, and um, so they'll refer out to me for that usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So plant based and um, diabetes are like kind of your sort of niche specialties that you so you have a deeper understanding of. Mm-hmm. So did you, did you hire anyone ever in your private practice to do any kind of work for you? And, um, do you work with anyone else specifically? So I started solo just, um, working with an accountant. So I guess the people I hired were more contract based. So, um, a tax accountant who does my tax filing, um, I can ask business questions and then again, the attorney that I can pay per hour. Um, and then obviously Adam, uh, who does the podcast and does all the, the back end in terms of like video production type stuff. Um, so that, is the only person that I've, in a sense, hired. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm, I'm technically a contract employee for your business, and mm-hmm. you pay uh, a CPA, an accountant, yes. for services that you sort of, it's like per diem. Yeah. Same thing with the legal stuff for, your, for the lawyer. So you don't have an employee officially. I am technically a contract employee, but yeah. I, I don't draw a salary from... You know, it's not like it's it's sort of unofficial official. Yeah, and that's you know some dietitians do hire contract dietitians or they're hire they're they will hire like a virtual assistant. Um, so there's definitely opportunity to like grow. I just that's not something I wanted to do necessarily with the business uh, for Peraz Nutrition, but I could hire a dietitian if I wanted to, and that would take portal health. Yeah, so you you could technically hire a dietitian to be under the umbrella of Peraz Nutrition, who say maybe was willing to do in-home appointments mm-hmm. and you could, that dietitian would work for Felicia in that Felicia would say, all right, here's your client list for this day. Yep. Here are the locations. And then, you know, you, here are the charts or whatever. And then Felicia would do all of the setup with the insurance company, handle the billing and then pay out the dietitian. Yes. So all that dietitian needs to do is see the client. Yeah. Be a dietitian. Handle, <laughs> yeah, they don't have to handle any of the business stuff. Yeah everything's taken care of for them. That's a way that you could hire a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you're a dietitian who wants to start inching into private practice, that might be a good opportunity for someone to kind of check it out and be in the world of that if a dietitian were hiring. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how has your practice changed over the years? What are some like big shifts that it has taken since you started? So kind of what we were mentioning, like obviously it's changed a lot in terms of how I see clients. I started from a place of doing home visits and on-site businesses, visits for businesses. And now it's turned into, you know, only virtual <laughs> telehealth at this point. So it's changed quite a bit. Um, I've also integrated more like systems and processes. So like onboarding processes more defined as to exactly what I do for a new client, the paperwork they get. I have a, an electronic medical record system and a scheduling process where people can schedule their appointment online. So there's a lot more stuff that's like streamlined and not necessarily pieced together or, oh, I need to send this. Um, and then my approach to sessions has actually changed a lot too. So it's less directing and more of this kind of collaborative approach and, and really emphasizing motivational motivational interviewing. Um, and then also the My Dietitian Journey piece. So when I started the practice, I didn't really see, I was, I had a blog for my dietitian journey, but it wasn't its own thing and it didn't have, 
business coach. It didn't have all this other stuff with it. So, you know, I've created now two businesses at this point. And um, so that's a big change too. Yeah. To clarify, Peraza Nutrition LLC and My Dietitian Journey LLC are yep. two separate entities. And typically you're not going to see, you're not going to see that in most people's practice if they're just you're just doing clients and stuff and, and in classes or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, for Felicia, it's a little bit different because we're doing this. This is a separate component of, uh, of her practice. So yeah, as, as you got into it more and took on more clients and understood things better, you started to determine what was worth paying for in terms of streamlining certain things and what was worth outsourcing. You didn't start right away with the uh, system you have now for your EMR. Yeah. You didn't start right away with the CPA, no. uh, an accountant. So, you know, there, these things have changed. And of course, you know, the, they, those things have incorporated themselves into your overhead. Yes. But as you're able to accumulate wealth or, you know, make, make more, um, and, and pay for these things, it, it doesn't, it's not a factor. Yeah. Because it became like my time, you know, I was spending how many hours doing this when I could, you know, pay someone <laughs> to do it, you know, and it, it didn't matter as much anymore because I had clients, I had an income coming from the business to, to again, account for that. But and it, the stress, you know. Yeah, balancing the time and the money and how much you make and how much you're willing to pay out to save yourself time, that changes over over the course of uh, your practice. So, like, it's a nice segue into our next question. <laughs> how do you find, uh, how do you determine your work-life balance? So, what do you, what kind of informs you of how to spend your time? And, and what what makes you decide, all right, going to cut it off here? Like, how do you, how do you feel that out? So I'm still, this is always still a work in progress for me and, and probably any business owner Constant will tell you that. struggle for <laughs> so, a type A personality like you. I, I have a lot of issue with delegating. And so um, sometimes you need to take a step back. And what I tell myself is like, I can't do everything. And as much as, you know, I want to do every little thing in my business, I can't. Um, and so I, accepting that I think was kind of like the first part of this. Um, but having a block schedule actually really helped me. What days, like I mentioned, I'm seeing clients Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from, you know, one or three, depending on the time, what I'm doing that day until like six and then no clients on Thursdays and then clients in the morning on Fridays. Being able to kind of create a block schedule actually helped me to better manage my own schedule and work-life balance a little bit. Having a day where I do specific things, like we do a podcast on a certain day now, you know, when I'm going to do the business stuff, which is like my Fridays than just trying to fit it in whenever because either I didn't get to it or I was stressed about it or I was like working until late trying to finish something. And then being able to like prioritize, you know, prioritize my list, you know, what needs to get done today and what can wait until tomorrow and what things, you know, do I really need to spend a lot of time on versus not? And I'm just doing it because maybe I'm procrastinating doing something else. (laughs) And so I think looking critically at my schedule and my life is important. Um, to be able to identify like where I need to have a little bit more balance. Well, you also do plan to do things outside of your practice. And by planning those things, like you would plan things for work, they become a higher priority. Mm-hmm. Sort of planning it in a, more, in a more official capacity. When you have lots of things to manage in your life, and you know if you have a job and kids or whatever, that you have to plan things to make them a priority. And if you don't you know, if you don't, it doesn't get measured, you know, if, you, if it gets measured, it gets managed is, is one of the sayings, one of the expressions. So you officially, you have a very detailed calendar day to day that's color coded. Things are blocked out. Yes. And you talked about that, but you, you block out more than just your work. Yes. I block out what time I'm going to go to the gym. That's highlighted in a certain color. Like I block out 
when I'm going to like you do a lot of the cooking, but you know, when I was cooking or when I'm doing certain things, like my hard stop at night when I'm going to stop working and either watch something or I like to crochet. So unwinding at night, you know, having some leisure time, having some downtime, but you plan it. Yes. If you don't, you know, your schedule tends to run wild and you end up working late. Yeah. It was a, it was a thing for a long time with you where you'd be working at like 9 PM. still. Yeah. And had been going since like 7 a.m. Yeah. And that's where, you know, like I started having these hard stop times with myself to say like, okay, at this time I'm going to stop. Um, and, and the same with like the gym and like working out and all of that. Like I, I needed to put it in my calendar because otherwise it was just something that like I forgot about or I put at the end of the day and then I was too tired or busy. And so if I blocked it out like any other appointment, I got to it and I stopped. I, you know, 12 o'clock, it's time to do this, you know, so. Yeah, you you made it a priority by setting boundaries. Yeah. It's a big deal. So are there any nutrition entrepreneurship articles, books, um, any specific resources that you found to be helpful when you were setting up? So definitely um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they've got a lot more of a resource library now for private practice, Um, specifically the practice group, the nutrition entrepreneurs. Um, blogs and podcasts from other dietitians, like, um, other RDs, like Amy Plano is one. The dietitian project is another one. Um, they have resources free, you know, podcasts, videos that could be really helpful. Um, the small business administration, uh, the free library near you and things like score, which we'll put the links to all these, but, um, those kinds of like just more business, they're not necessarily related to dietetics, but they will talked about how to structure a business, how to form your business entity like, and, you know, how to create a business plan, all of that stuff. Um, so those would be the kind of the big ones. Um, but I would, I would definitely, if you're an Academy member, start there and they have resources for those who aren't Academy members too, but they have a space on like payment and pra- private practice and, um, some downloadable resources too, that are really helpful. Yeah, we'll leave tons of links in the, in the description for all that sort of stuff. It's a great starting point, though. I mean, you you used it a lot when mm-hmm. you were getting started. I remember you talking about it. Um, so, how do you how do you stay up to date with uh, the latest and greatest in dietetics research? What are your main resources for making sure that you stay current? So today's dietitian, which is probably one of my favorite ones, um, I get their magazine, but I also do their self-study courses. And I did a lot of their self-study courses for continuing education. Um, the Academy, the magazine that they send out for that. And then I also signed up for the smart brief alerts, like the email ones. And usually it highlights like latest nutrition research, but also like dietitians in the field too, um, and what other RDs are doing. So that's really helpful. Um, free webinars through like different companies. So like there's ones like working and, and all of those out there that offer free webinars. And those, um, can be really helpful with just one, they're free. They can give you continuing ed, but the latest science and and information and again, blocking it off on your calendar. So then it's there and you're sitting down and doing it. And then I periodically check, um, spaces like Skelly skills and other continuing education providers that just see what's new there. And same thing, I just sign up for their email alerts uh, for new, you know, new release products or continuing education. And, you know, it's sometimes those email alerts, which I have a specific email where all that stuff goes to, I can just kind of quick look through if I have time or, you know, if I'm looking for something in particular and it's all there instead of going to like 15 different websites. Um, and then honestly, teaching <laughs> has kept me on my toes with um, the latest headlines and research and, and questions that I get from students that... Um, 
things of that I don't even know about myself that I have to look into. So, well, it's that's part of a, it's the product of working in anything science related in in today's world where technology is developing so quickly and there are so many advancements being made that you know endocrinology is a field that that's very like tangent it's 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 parallel practically to dietetics mm-hmm. and there are just a lot of stuff is is being discovered and, and advancing and they're just in general with medicine you know biology there's a lot of big leaps being made right now with all kinds of stuff with genetics and like the, the genome like it's just tons being yeah. done right now that is going to directly relate to dietetics and what our best and current understanding is science is fluid Mm-hmm. As things get discovered and found out, uh, practices will change. That doesn't mean that they were wrong before and right now. It means that we have better information now. Yes. So it's important to stay on top of it because if you if you don't stay informed, you may not be informing clients of best practices and you may start to self, see yourself sort of fall off with, with an understanding of this stuff. Yeah. You, know, you may not mean to uh, give someone bad information or, or, you know, be wrong about something, but you know, there was maybe five years ago you were right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like anything changed. That's the thing is scientific literacy is, is a thing. And if you're a dietitian, it is your obligation to stay literate and informed yes. with science. And be able to, I mean, that, that is a part of it is like to understand what you're reading too, and not just, you know, go to the source of the information, go to the actual, you know, study that was being done and not just you know, some random website talking about the study, but you looking at it critically yourself, um, which, you know, I mentioned the Academy of Nutrition, they have uh, position papers that they update. I think it's every five years, but I could be wrong. Uh, but they have position statement papers that combine all of the latest research on a certain topic um, and then inform practice. So it has the latest guidelines and up-to-date information, um, the scope of practice, but the the standards of professional practice. And those are available, I think, for not just members, but non-members too. Those are really good resources. Again, combining all the different and latest research into something, you know, more digestible and, and specific. So like one for renal disease, one for sports. So uh, definitely check those out too. All right, and that is our last frequently asked question for the My Dietitian Journey podcast here today. Hope that was helpful and informative. If you have any questions or comments, concerns, anything that you're curious about, please feel free to leave it in a comment below on our YouTube video for this podcast. If you're listening, um, a little harder to access us via the podcast in terms of questions. Oh, it's yeah. not like you can't you can't like post a question on the on the audio for a podcast. Oh, again. But yeah, yeah, come on, come on over to YouTube and drop a, a question if you if you'd like to ask something specific. We do check the questions. So yes. feel free to ask. Um, but that is going to do it for us here at the My Dietitian Journey podcast. Thanks so much for being with us.